Good to be, uh, it's good to be with you this morning, be able to speak to you in David's absence. Uh, it's always a fearful uh, thing to step in behind uh, a man such as David, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot here. Uh, I wanted to read something for you this morning. On your uh, handout there, we will be addressing the issue of the unity of the church, but doing it from the side of talking about disunity in the church which is so prevalent. But let me read something for you just to start our time this morning. As members of blank Bible church, we welcome you into our fellowship. We covenant together that we will be kind to each other and forgiving. Even as God has forgiven us, we will carefully seek to put away all bitterness and evil speaking, but instead look for every opportunity to serve others for Christ's sake. We will pray for those who have the rule over us and will submit to the oversight and discipline of the officers and members of our church. Also, we will give as God has prospered us, as God loves a cheerful giver. And finally, we confidently pray together with thanksgiving that God will continue to work through us for the effective working of his word, both here and throughout the world. That's a beautiful church covenant, isn't it? It really communicates the desire for unity, the desire to serve God, to serve each other, to love one another as God had loved them. But beloved, that church is the one that David spoke to you of last week. That is the church that is currently in arbitration. Both sides have hired lawyers. The church is split up the middle and the 60 or so uh, folks that remain are fighting over this $6 million property. And so what I wanted to do is talk to you this morning about the need for unity in the church and the way that division can so easily creep into the body of Christ. And uh, exhortation after exhortation in the New Testament, most of what we have comes to us by way of the apostles warning us about the potential for division in the body of Christ. They've written these letters with the underlying theme that there is division in the church in the first century. You know, we think the first century church had it all together. We think they had no problems, but the reality is that the New Testament was written largely to address the matters that were dividing the churches. And so it is with that hope this morning that I... uh, communicate this message to you, it's hard for me to believe that anybody would intentionally set out to split a church. Uh, It's hard for me to believe that folks would want to be a lightning rod for a church split. Yet the fact remains that churches split all the time. They split every week. And so how does that happen? Well, the point of these next two weeks is to see that maybe we have blind spots. Maybe we don't see things Uh, all the time so clearly. And that maybe uh, there are things that we're doing that could possibly be the source of division, even with the best of intentions and the purest of motives. That we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we are being diligent to preserve the unity of the church rather than be a lightning rod for division. And so, uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, I hope to address really the issue of Twelve proven methods, if you'll look on your handout there, 
Uh, we're going to look at 12 proven methods of how to successfully split a church. And my hope is that in the next two weeks, you will not listen to a word I'm telling you, that you will actually do just the opposite, because uh, this is probably the only time you'll ever hear from the pulpit where a pastor tells you, don't do what I'm telling you to do. People embody ministry. And I think I just want to say this up front. The reason why churches split is because people are passionate about ministry. It's who they are. They take ownership of it. And when it gets taken away from them or it gets challenged, it's like a part of them is being ripped apart. And so people fight without even realizing they're doing it. They hold on to things tightly because it's a part of who they are. So, uh, this is not the norm for me, uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to do a broad sweep of the New Testament and, and look for this underlying theme of division that runs through the New Testament with the hopes of pulling out some principles and making some applications. I'm not going to take a verse at a time and work my way through a book. It's going to be more of a broad sweeping exposition. Uh, it's not my norm, but uh, I hope... I will make it clear for you. So 12 proven methods of how to split a church. The first one there on your handout and fill in the blanks, if you like, is to be factious, to be factious or to choose sides, choose sides. Factions uh, comes from the Greek word heresies in the New Testament. And uh, it is, in fact, translated in the New American Standard is translated as a noun factions. Uh, twice. It also appears as an adjective factious once and uh, six other times it appears as the word sects, S-E-C-T-S. It always is used negatively, but what we're talking about is factions. It gives you a pretty good idea of the semantic range of the word. Uh, we're talking about divisiveness here. We're talking about uh, splitting into parties, uh, divisions within the church. So uh, I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians, if you will. Chapter 1. The word itself is interesting. And actually, uh, I'm going to read something for you. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 19. The Apostle Paul uses it in a very interesting way in 1 Corinthians 11, 19. He says there must be factions among you in Corinth. Uh, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Paul says that there must, and the word must in the Greek is the word day, it's divine necessity. There has to be divisions among you in Corinth. And the reason for that is so that the approved will, in a sense, bubble up to the surface and the, uh, the disapproved will wash away. So the Corinthian assembly, uh, Paul could see who the committed were through the winnowing process of division. There was a necessity that they be divisive. So uh, despite our sin, I guess what I want to say is that God overrules. God overrules sovereignly over divisions in the church, even though it's sin that's motivating it. uh, God is bigger than all of that. And so we can praise him for that. It's a good thing to start this series, though, in in, uh, uh, Corinth with the divisions. And what we're going to do is just going to take a book at a time and just kind of roll through. And uh, like I said, pick out this theme. But uh, the church at Corinth struggled with factionalism. Um, You remember Paul founded this church on his second missionary journey. 
Uh, and so at this point, the point of the writing of this letter, uh, the church is only about five years old. That ought to sober you up right there. The church is only five years old and Paul's having to write to them about all the factionalism and divisions that are happening within the church. And he's, in chapter one specifically, uh, you know, you could say Corinth clearly wins the prize for messed up church of the first century. They were full of factions. And, and Paul says um, in verse 10, he says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed among you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I of Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? If we if we take a look at those verses, we see that they really knew how to slice up a church. They knew um, and, and this is not to say that it's not OK to follow a man uh, in discipleship to the degree that that man follows Christ. But these people were factionalizing. They were they were following men instead of following Christ. They were they were loyal to the men rather than loyal to the church of God. And so th- there was, of course, first in the list, there was Paul, uh, you know, Apostle to the Gentiles, evangelizer and missionary planter of of the whole uh, seaboard there in Asia and Europe. Who wouldn't want to be claimed to be in allegiance with Paul? Right. Then there was Apollos, Apollos from Alexandria. He was a uh, an eloquent speaker uh, whose philosophical and oratorial oratorical skills were his preaching was just preeminent. He was a, a man of the word and people respected him for his preaching. So the people in Corinth were choosing sides, essentially, because of their preference in preaching styles. Paula, Apollos uh, refused to be a party to this, so he left um, and he returned to Ephesus and refused to ever go back to Corinth again. First uh, Corinthians sixteen twelve. And there was Cephas, a third party. Cephas is the, uh, the Aramaic name given to Simon by Jesus in uh, John 1.42. He's also known as Petros in the Greek. And there's no evidence that Peter was actually ever even in Corinth. But the people there, the Judaizers, they came and they pitted Peter against Paul to the Corinthian church on the basis of Paul's rebuke of Peter at Antioch, Galatians 2. So it appears that the Judaizers were bitter towards Paul uh, for the defeat uh, at the Jerusalem Council. So this third faction, in essence, developed to pit Peter against Paul. And Peter was supposed to be the more conservative branch in the church. He was the orthodox wing of the church, the gospel of the circumcision. Those people flocked to Peter. So you have Peter, you have Paul. You have Apollos and then a fourth faction arises. And those are people that essentially think that they have some sort of uh, inside relationship with Christ himself. They have a little bit more of an advantage than anybody else in the church. And so this partisan use of the name of Christ may have actually been 
in some attempt to unify the church. But in actuality, all it did was create a fourth faction in the church and it actually lowered Christ to the level of these other people. So Paul asked the question in verse 13, and it's really a profound question, and I want to take a little time to talk about it. You shouldn't pass over it lightly, but the major deterrent to disunity in the church is the unity and the oneness of the Godhead. He says, has Christ been divided? Can Christ, who is eternal God, be divided? Can Christ, who is part of the Trinity, be separated from the rest of the Trinity? Can the Trinity itself be divided? One of the major themes of this book that I want to just kind of lift out here, look up at verse 2 of chapter 1. It is one of the major themes. And it is the little genitive phrase there, church of God. Paul's major point throughout this book, this phrase is used four times in this book, and it's only used four times elsewhere in the New Testament outside of the book. But four times in this book alone, Paul says it's the church of God. And this is significant because God purchased the church with the blood of his very son. God owned the church. His spirit inhabits the church. The church is made up of people not buildings. So to tamper with the unity of the church is to tamper with the very Trinity itself. The oneness of God to divide the church is to divide Christ. And uh, I'm just going to have you flip to John 17 real quick just to keep you awake. John 17 here. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer before he was crucified. And what did he pray for? John 17, 20 to 23. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. Uh, Jim read for us 1 John 4. It would uh, communicate the same thing. Uh, let me have you flip over to Proverbs 6.16 real quick. Proverbs 6.16-19. to 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. So there are six things which the Lord hates. And now he's going to list them off for you. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads or sends out strife or division, or disunity among his brothers. God hates it. That's what the Scripture says. Now, God can use it, but he hates it. God hates divisiveness because what God has brought together, let no man, you finish it, let no man tear asunder what God has brought together. Thus, our title this morning for this message. 
So to tamper with the unity of the church of God is to tamper with the very unity of the Godhead. The Spirit inhabits His people, and if you divide His people, what are you doing? You're dividing the Spirit. But if you really want to split a church, this is a great way to do it. (laughs) Say, I'm of David. Say, I'm of Vincent. I'm of Art. I'm of Jim. I'm of an Oikos leader. Choose sides. Be factious. Uh, Be divisive and you will split the church of God. You will pit the leadership against each other and it will be nothing but destruction. Whose church is it? It's God's church. Is God divided? No. Let me run something else by you here, okay? And as I thought about how to apply this as well, let me just say, what about figures in church history? What about I am of Calvin? I am of Arminius. Okay? I am of Augustine. Um, We need to be very careful that even in understanding true doctrines, that we don't identify them with a man. Okay? I am all for the doctrines of Reformed, the, the Reformed doctrines of grace. Okay? I'm all for it. Uh, many of you know me. You know I'm just as zealous as you are about it. But, beloved, those Reformed doctrines of grace can be a blunt instrument on people's heads. Not everybody is where we are at on those doctrines. Not everybody agrees with us. And it's not a matter of salvation. You can believe the gospel and you can believe in Christ and you can trust in Christ for forgiveness without ascribing to all five points. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can use that as a blunt instrument and you can unnecessarily divide the church of God where it doesn't need to be. And I know that we don't want to be a lightning rod for division. But if you do, then keep on doing it. Make it an issue. Be divisive. Be factious. Choose sides. Another proven method for splitting the church is to abuse your freedom in Christ. Abuse your freedom in Christ. See, the Corinthians understood. uh, Go over to chapter 10. Uh, The Corinthians understood their freedom in Christ. They understood it to the point of being libertine. Uh, hey, we can do whatever we want now. This is great. We can eat meat sacrificed to idols. We can sue each other. We can tolerate immorality in the ranks. We can even practice our spiritual gifts for our own edification. We can do whatever we want now, right? We're redeemed in Christ. We're free. No problem. After all, the law has been done away with, according to the Apostle Paul, so we're free. And Paul's answer to this comes in chapter 6 and verse 12. If you want to flip over there real quick. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things aren't necessarily profitable. And he repeats that in 10.23. He again says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. It's not a difficult argument for the Apostle Paul here. Yes, you are free in Christ from the guilt and the curse of the law, but don't think for a minute that the abusing your liberty in Christ won't split the church of God. Right up the middle. 
Don't think you can abuse your liberty and it won't affect the unity. In fact, flip over to chapter 6, starting at verse 12. Right after he makes that statement, he says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is the body. And the Lord is for the body, sorry. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The issue of God indwelling the church comes up here again. The you here is not singular, it's plural. Your body is a plural body. The temple of the church is the indwelling place of the spirit. Verse 19, your body, plural. Uh, The spirit who is in you, plural. That you are not your own, plural. Verse 20, you have been bought, Plural, by the way, that's redeemed with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your plural body. There is, and I will say this over and over again, you have an individual relationship with Christ, but that individual relationship takes place in the context of a corporate body of believers. When you sin, it affects the whole body. That's the point. This is huge. Sanctification has personal aspects to it. Your growth in the Lord involves your own personal walk. But the New Testament always puts it in the context of a corporate body. So if you hear nothing else that I say in the next two weeks, understand that there is a corporate dimension to your sanctification. Your individual relationship with the Lord is part of a bigger whole. Okay? It's it's you, plural. Uh, Sexual immorality is an individual sin, um, but it has an effect on the entire corporate body. And again, to tamper with the unity of the whole is to tamper with the unity of God. Christ is not divided, is he? The spirit is not divided, is he? Therefore, you do not have rights as a Christian. You have responsibilities. You're free indeed. But you're free to be a slave to righteousness. You are free indeed. You are free from the guilt and curse of the law. But you are now free to be a slave to righteousness. You have responsibilities to the whole body of Christ. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Am I not free? Hey, if anybody's free, it's me. I'm an apostle. (laughs) Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord, myself, with my very own eyes? Are you, this church, not the product of my church planting? If anybody around here is free, it's me. 
But what does he say down in verse uh, 12? He says, uh, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul deferred his rights for the sake of the gospel. He deferred his liberty. So if you want to split a church and cause your weaker brother to stumble, then by all means, insist upon your rights and your freedom in Christ. Indulge yourself and your pleasures, and you will indeed bring division to the church of God. You know, we tend to think of uh, church splits on a grand scale, too. We think, you know, big church splits, you know. But this can happen even when a single person leaves the church, when you think about it. If we're all, right, the indwelling place of the Spirit of God, if one person leaves the church, it is a church split, technically. What about a divorce? What happens in a divorce? Small scale. It's their marriage, but their individual sin playing out on that marriage causes a divorce and, and two people become lost from the church. It affects the entire corporate body. It is, it, your individual sin has corporate dimensions to it. So these are two great ways to split a church. Choose sides. Abuse your freedom in Christ. And if you practice them well, you will rip a church in half. Third, be critical of the leadership and refuse to submit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, Paul writes to Corinth with the best of intentions as a father uh, sort of caring for his children. But what he got in return from them was nothing but pure acid. Uh, I want you to just, you can track these with me, but uh, I'm just going to do a broad sweep through this book. But uh, 117 Uh, Paul is uh, charged with vacillating, vacillating. And, you know, Paul had intended to stop at Corinth on his way to Macedonia, then return to Corinth after ministering in Macedonia. But the plans for his first stop were changed. And so Paul never made it. So they accused him of vacillating, vacillating. Secondly, they accused him in 124 of being a dictator. They accused him of being a dictator. Paul just, you know, orders from on high. Thirdly, they, caused, they said that he caused pain in 2-2 and 4 and 5. 2-2, 4 and 5. Paul causes pain amongst the congregations. 3-1, they accused Paul of being uncredentialed. He's uncredentialed. He's not qualified to tell us what to do. 4-3, they accused his gospel of being unclear. He doesn't make any sense. The guy's not clear. We can't understand a word he's saying. He veils certain truths. 7-2, they said he was destructive. 10-2, that he walked according to the flesh. 10-10, they accused him of being a coward. 11-5, he wasn't an original apostle. 12-11, he wasn't a super apostle like Peter. This one had to hurt the most. 12, 16 to 18. They said that he collected money for himself. 
and 13.10, they accused him of tearing down the church. This against the man who planted this church. This against the man who poured himself out for these people. And were it not for the grace of God and the strength of Paul's convictions, he would have washed his hands of these people a long time ago. They were caustic. The underlying problem with the church at Corinth was not Paul and his ministry or his credentials. It was their refusal to submit to the leadership which God had installed over them. That's the bottom line. They thought they knew best and nobody was going to tell them otherwise. And in fact, their love of their sin in 1 Corinthians caused them to blind themselves to Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians which is essentially the defense of his ministry. You know, in fact, this is what causes many pastors to leave their churches today. I'll just be real, real honest with you today. The criticisms leveled against pastors and their families are devastating to men in ministry. I've seen numerous guys drop out of the ministry. Um, many leave ministry altogether. They never return. Many take extended sabbaticals and try to find other churches. Do you know that the average pastoral tenure in America in the 17th century was 20 plus years? 20 plus years. Do you know what it is today? It's three to five years. Three to five years. It goes two ways, though. You know, pastors can be authoritarian. I'm not going to ascribe all the blame to one side. Pastors can be authoritarian and they can split their church. They can be prideful. They can be arrogant. They can not take criticism well. Sometimes it's a both and rather than an either or. Yet the scriptures are clear on this. Hebrews 13 says we're to do what to our leaders? Submit. Because they keep watch over your souls. It's not... It's not a hard thing to do. They're, they're shepherding your soul. First Peter 5 uh, tells the elders to shepherd the church of God among them. By the way, look at 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and 21. And just look at these lists. Paul gives two sin lists here, one in verse 20, one in verse 21. The first list in verse 20, which he lists at first, so in his mind it takes a higher priority, is all about strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slander, gossip, arrogance. It's all about divisions in the body of Christ. What's the second list about? Impurity, immorality, sensuality. The second list is sexual sins. Which one does Paul take more seriously? The one that he lists first. Paul takes divisions in the church more seriously. We tend to flip that around. You know, we tend to alienate uh, people that are struggling in those areas. But the reality is the people that are divisive are more harmful to the church than the other. Not that both aren't harmful, but, but Paul took the other one more seriously. And again, this is the underlying tone of much of the New Testament, is the apostles trying to establish and keep the unity of the church. Uh, just flip to the last chapter real quick. I want to point something else out to you. This is the epilogue, verses 11 to 14. Notice the epilogue. 
He says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete or perfect, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. What's the exhortation there? Trinitarian unity again. If you split the church of God, you split the unity. The love of God, the love of the Lord, I'm sorry, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. That's why he put that reminder there at the end. It's the church of God. And Christ is not divided. So, if you want to split a church, uh, be critical of the leadership, refuse to submit, and you will cause division. Fourthly, walk in your flesh. Galatians chapter 5. Just understand that this, Paul has spent the first four chapters of the book of Galatians dealing with um, the dismantling of the validity of the law for salvation or sanctification. So he gets to chapter 5 and the natural question in people's minds is, okay, we don't have the law to restrain our sin or our transgression anymore, so what's going to restrain us? And so Paul's answer to that in chapter 5 is, the Spirit of God which indwells you. The Spirit of God is what's going to restrain you, so walk in the Spirit, not in your flesh. And the flesh uh, here, uh, I will try to um, explain that in just a moment. Uh, that's a million dollar question though. How do I deal with my sin and my transgression if I don't have the law anymore to restrain me? And the Judaizers, they claim that the law would help fight off the flesh. But Paul says the, re- the Spirit replaces the law and that's what controls you now. The Spirit takes the place of the law for Christians. So this war between the Spirit and the flesh is on the individual again. But there's a corporate aspect to this entire uh, section, verses 13 to 26, because he says, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity uh, for the flesh. But what? Through love, serve one another. So walking in the flesh is serving yourself in this context. Uh, Walking in the spirit is loving the body of Christ. There, There is a context to this. It is not your own personal psychological struggle with sin, nor is it a struggle within your soul. Uh, What we're talking about here is whether or not you're divisive in the congregation or whether or not you're building up the unity of the body. Either you fulfill the law by serving one another, verse 13, and loving your neighbor as yourself, verse 14, or you serve yourself and your own fleshly desires and you create division. Well, how do I know that? Well, look at Paul's list over here of the sins of the flesh. This can be divided into four groups of sins. uh, And I won't take the time to explain every one to you, but I do want to show you the focus of these sins. Sexual sins first. The first three, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual sins. Secondly, there are servitude sins. There are uh, worshiping idols and witchcraft and sorcery. Uh, third group is the social sins. And, and this, there are eight of these, whereas there are only three in the first one and two in the second. And, and now this third category has eight sins in it. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. 
In the interest of time, I won't explain all of them to you. But, uh, for instance, disputes means to work for hire, and it's used in a bad sense of those who seek only their own. It's contention, it's strife, it's rivalry, it's, it's uh, a motive of self and self-interest or mercenary interest. Uh, dissensions is standing apart, separating off, uh, a separation, a faction, a division. Uh, factions is the word we already looked at as heresy. So, so this social sin category has eight sins attached to it. And so Paul is saying the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're factiousness, divisiveness, self-seeking. And then that fourth category is the self-control sins of drunkenness, carousing, and the like. So if you look at the numbers, sexual three, servitude two, social eight, self-control two, uh, it becomes pretty plain what Paul is saying, uh, that their inability to get along, their desire to live for self, their factiousness, their creating division in the, in the church is tantamount to idolatry, to sexual sin and to drunken debauchery. And he says that those who live or walk in this type of fleshly lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 21. Why? Because this type of fleshly behavior destroys the church of God. And if any man destroys the church of God, God will destroy him. We're talking about general patterns of lifestyle here, not an individual act. Let me just say that. So he says over in uh, verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is a first class condition, which means that it's assumed that it's true. He says, since you are, since you are biting and devouring one another, watch out. Because what comes around goes around. So like two snakes that grab each other by the tail and start swallowing, uh, pretty soon there's nothing left. And this is all proven by uh, 526. How does he summarize the end of this? He says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. So walking in the flesh means to be divisive. Walking in the spirit means to crucify your flesh with its passions and its desires to die to self and to live to serve the brethren. Uh, Flip back to chapter two, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. By the way, notice the quotation marks around that. Who's he, who's he saying that to? Pop over to verse 14 and he says, I said to Cephas in the presence of everybody. He's saying this to Peter. That's a public rebuke. So walking in the flesh as an individual destroys the corporate fellowship of the church. This is an excellent way to split a church. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. It's that church in Orange County, isn't it? That's what it sounds like. 
So be factious, choose sides, abuse your freedom in Christ, be critical of the leadership, refuse to submit, walk in your flesh, and you will split a church. I'm going to do one more here. We'll have to cover the others next week. A fifth proven way to split a church is to consider yourself to be racially superior. Flip over to the book of Ephesians. Again, we're just going to sweep the book. But uh, the church in Ephesus had a problem with the Jews and the Gentiles living in unity. So Paul writes this letter to remind them that it was God who had brought them together and placed them under the headship of Christ. It was God who had established the unity and who were they to divide the church up? So chapter one, uh, Jews and Gentiles brought together to the praise of God's glory. It's all a work of his grace. Uh, Jews first, Gentiles also sealed with the spirit. Uh, They're one now in Christ. That's how they got together. Uh, Chapter two, the union of the Jews and the Gentiles together through the gospel of what? The gospel of peace. God broke down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and eliminated the hostility between God and men. And so he made the two into one new group, the new man, the church, of which the apostles are the foundation. Chapter three, the mystery is revealed to the apostle Paul and Paul is to now preach that mystery, which is the church, Jews and Gentiles as fellow heirs, 3.6. Chapter 4, the walk of the believer, building up the unity of the church, 4.3 and 4.13. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, establishment of the unity, building up the unity, working at unity. Chapter 5, the actual practices to put into place in order for Jews and Gentiles to live in unity. And chapter 6.10, standing firm in unity and following the spiritual warfare described here in all of these verses then is not some weird uh, deliverance ministry. What it is, is that it is... um, not allowing the evil one to get in and destroy the unity of the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Praying for all the saints, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles. The gospel of peace, verse 15. So if you really want to split a church and make an issue out of ethnic and racial differences among the members of the congregation, treat them like they belong somewhere else, anywhere else but here. And you will split a church. This is illustrated really well, by the way, in Acts 6 1. The Hellenists, the Greek Jews, were overlooking or neglecting or being overlooked or being neglected by the, the blue bloods, the, the Hebrew um, converts. So the complaints started. And so the apostles found a quick remedy to the solution. And they appointed these prototypical deacons to take care of the Hellenistic uh, Jewish widows. They dodged a bullet. They dodged a bullet, but it was no small bullet. You know, until we really apprehend the grace of God, we will never really get over our race issues. We'll never get over it. You know, my Bible says that there is only one race. Right? There is only one race. We are all condemned sinners apart from the grace of God, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus preached one gospel, not two. 
And it was the gospel of peace. Jews, all of Abraham's descendants and Gentiles, which includes everyone of non-Jewish descent, have been made into one new man, the church. And the Bible recognizes no other race. Do you realize that? All are descendants of Adam. All are descendants of Noah. We are all of the same race. There are different cultures. There are different ethnic identities. But there is only one race. And all stand equally condemned before a holy God. They are all the offspring of Adam. They are all in need of the same gospel. So if you want to split a church, forget the gospel of peace, which reconciles Jews and Gentiles together into one new man. Say there's a different gospel for other races. Alienate those who don't act like you, talk like you, look like you, or express worship like you, and you will split the church of God. You know, we really need to examine our hearts very closely on this one. I think all of us do. Those people are taking away our jobs. How many of you have heard that before? Those people are causing me to pay more taxes. How many of you have heard that one before? That's our mission field. Those people are our mission field. That's who they are. God purchased them if they are his elect with the blood of his son. They are his. They need redemption just as much as you did. So consider yourself racially superior and you will split the church of God. I'm out of time. I could go over, but David would never forgive me. So let's pray and we will pick up the rest of these next week. Our Father, we uh, recognize that the unity of this church is merely a gift of your grace. Our Father, there is a thin veneer of civility that underlies what we do. Lord, it could easily be fractured. It could easily be broken were we to forget the grace of God in our own lives. Our Father, we need your grace to maintain the unity of this fellowship. We need to keep our eyes fixed on our heavenly citizenship and not the here and now. We need to remember, our Father, that we are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God and that the Godhead is not divided. Lord, help us to ponder these things, to think about these things as the week progresses and to do all that we have been called to do, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called to preserve the unity of this fellowship. Not for our sake, our Father, but for Christ's great glory in this community. May others look at us and see the love of Christ as we love one another. We pray in his name. Amen.